0: Today on Physically Spiritual, I'll be exploring principles of longevity, the distinction between strategy and tactics, hagiography and holiness. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I have been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has transformed my spiritual life. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. So, in the last week, i was excited uh, the last week before recording this episode i was excited by the release of a book i've been looking forward to for a long time the book is called outlive the science and art of longevity by dr peter atia and dr Attia has been one of uh one of the kind of guideposts in my own health journey in learning about the way my body works and staying up to date on research and his uh weekly podcast the drive really takes a deep dive into health sort of at the level that a, a doctor might find valuable or something like that. So uh, I've been able to just glean a lot of information from him over the years. So I've been looking forward to this book. And as I've been reading, I couldn't help but um, to spend some time reflecting on it on this show. So I'll have links in the show notes if you want to check out the book or his podcast. But um, really the, the value, I think, of looking at health from the perspective of longevity versus other biomarkers is I think it, it gives us a really valuable foil for thinking of overall health. Right. Maybe we we could think of health from the aspect of like athletic performance, right? But does that really take into account the whole person? Right. You might be able to eke out better performance, but on the other hand, have like worse mental health. Or we might look at health from the perspective of, of something like losing weight. Right. Well, there's a lot of ways to lose weight, um, some healthier for you than others. So is weight loss really a proxy for overall health? But this idea of longevity, of not just um, being able to be better now, but to survive longer, I think is uh, provides a context through which to, to maybe get the best information that we can from the secular world about what overall health means. And from his book, he presents, I think, a helpful framework to think about. First, he He makes a distinction in the book between medicine 1.0, medicine 2.0, and medicine 3.0. And he makes the claim that we're on the verge, or on the kind of horizon of beginning medicine 3.0. And he simply makes this distinction, that medicine 1.0 was medicine before the scientific revolution, right? So this is before the kind of advent of the modern scientific method. And with that uh, kind of an understanding of the body, maybe from a more philosophical perspective, but also not as a as fine detailed understanding. And he says medicine 2.0 really starts with um, with the scientific scientific revolution, but specifically with the event of the discovery of germ theory and being able to understand disease from a deeper level, a more accurate level of what's actually physiologically happening. And he says that we're on the verge of what he's calling Medicine 3.0. And I would point out three kind of main characteristics of this approach for medicine. So one would be the shift from looking at the the idea of health from the level of populations to the level of individuals. So, so far, a lot of what Medicine 2.0 has offered us as an understanding of the human person by looking at the population of people, by maybe doing a study into food, and with that, doing a survey of the whole population of a country or something like that, and then reporting out what thousands and thousands of people report that they ate, and then tracking their outcomes, right? So we're looking at a population and we're trying to draw some kind of relationship between their behavior and their outcomes, right? And this then suggests things to us on the population level. But as you know, no one's really average, right? We're all individuals. And one of the issues in health right now is we have so little uh, data on the individual level in order to understand what specifically I should do, right? So much of what we do works on averages. What should the average person's blood glucose be? What should, uh, what, how much dosage should the average person at this weight receive of a certain medicine? And then there's a certain trial and error involved. Well, Medicine 3.0 does uh, kind of a, a deeper look at you as an individual person on, on the genetic level, on, um, on different biomarkers, on being able to then even at times monitor your blood glucose or something like that live or on an ongoing basis, in order to then glean out more specific and individualized data about you and make decisions. There's also a shift in Medicine 3.0 from being evidence-based to evidence-informed. And this follows from the shift of being uh, based on populations to being based on individuals, right? A lot of scientists talk about this idea that they're evidence-based that their decisions, their recommendations, that what they do is based on evidence. And what they mean by this is that everything that they do is based on some research study. Typically, maybe a randomized controlled trial, sometimes some kind of mechanistic research or a Mendelian randomization. These are all different approaches that scientists take to research. And if there's a a weight of evidence that suggests a certain behavior, then they make that recommendation. An example of this would be... um, Maybe a connection between uh, consumption of carbohydrates and having high triglycerides in the blood, right? Well, there's maybe a mechanistic explanation for why that makes sense. Maybe there's a population study where people's diets have been surveyed. And then there's also, um, thirdly, a randomized controlled trial where they might take people and put them in in a lab to live for a while and give them all their food. And then there's a control group and then a group that has the intervention, and then they track their actual blood markers following the intervention, right? So when there's this kind of constellation of evidence, then it changes the recommendations that the doctors make. The difference between evidence-based though and evidence-informed is really on this understanding that each individual person is their own N of one, their own test case, their own person that's gonna react differently. Uh, one example of this would be uh, the, the effect that something like saturated fat has on somebody's blood lipids, on their lipid plan, panel of like total cholesterol versus LDL versus HDL cholesterol. Right, Some people will see a, a sharp increase of LDL, what's sometimes oversimplified as bad cholesterol, when they consume a lot of dietary saturated fat. Other people's blood cholesterol is almost unaffected by the saturated fat that they consume unless it's extremely excessive, right? So we, we mean to shift from being evidence-based to evidence-informed, as opposed to just telling everyone don't eat any saturated fat or limit your saturated fat. You could actually have people try a diet and then test their blood lipids and see how that diet affects them. And then by doing that, understand something deeper about their individual biology and then also understand how their lifestyle is affected or unaffected by the by the changes they've made. Finally, the third principle of medicine 3.0 is shifting from a focus on curing diseases to a focus on preventing them. This shift from focusing on curing diseases to focusing on preventing diseases really changes the perspective. In the book Dr. Atia uh, presents what he calls the four horsemen. These are basically the the four things that are most likely to kill us. If some uh, Acute trauma or something like that doesn't kill us. So these are uh, metabolic diseases, cardio, uh, respiratory diseases. So things like heart attacks and strokes, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, Lewy body dementia, ALS, other things of that nature, and then finally cancer. So they're the they are these he calls them the four horsemen, the four most likely health conditions that kill the majority of people. And so based on this, what he says right now is our our best research typically has studies of maybe five to seven or maybe in a rare case 10 years where they follow patients in order to track uh, their their outcomes, their heart outcomes, meaning if they die or not or if they have some kind of adverse event of one of these diseases in their life. But there's a tail to each one of these conditions that sometimes is 20 to 30 or more years into somebody's life where there's kind of precursors to the disease that start and then it kind of builds like a snowball until the symptoms are actually there after 10, 20, 30 years of the disease developing. So what he's proposing here is that in order to prevent a disease, we don't just need to intervene once the disease state manifests itself, but 10 or 20 or even 30 years before we get to that point, there are different signs we can look for and then lifestyle changes that we can make in order to prevent ever having that disease in the first place. So this is the shift to medicine 3.0. And he proposes along with this a shift from just focusing on lifespan to also focusing on health span. Lifespan is, is the amount of years that you live, right? It's like if you live to 80, your lifespan is 80. Health span is the amount of those years you're actually healthy, being defined as the amount of years that you're kind of functioning optimally, you're able to have a good lifestyle. So if you, for example, live to your 80. But when you're 65, you start to have severe dementia. And then maybe some different medical interventions keep you alive for 15 more years. You might live to being 80, but your health span is really only 65. In those last 15 years, your, your lifestyle and, and your quality of life is so vastly diminished. You know, it makes people wonder, should I even be alive during that time? We can have a similar differentiation with like cardiometabolic disease of maybe the onset of diabetes, type 1 or type 2 diabetes in someone's life, right? that drastically changes the quality of their life. And while many people who have those, it happens in their childhood or for genetic reasons, for some people it happens in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and then drastically affects the rest of their life moving forward from there. So this differentiation is is important in that we're not just trying to increase the absolute number of years that people stay alive, which is one of the main focuses of Medicine 2.0, you know, it keeps you alive, and then you get that disease. You have that first heart attack. You you get diagnosed with diabetes. You um, you start to have cognitive decline. And medicine 2.0 doesn't offer you a cure to any of these conditions. What well, it does it offers you ways to stay alive in spite of the fact that you have the condition? To shifting on a focus on health span, right? How can we actually delay the onset of the four horsemen by changing our lifestyle? In order to reach these goals, he proposes in this framework uh, that we think tactically about it. In order to do that, we need to differentiate between our goals and objectives and our strategy and tactics. Our goals and objectives, strategy and tactics. I introduced these concepts in season one of the podcast, and I'll link that video in the show notes. So a goal versus an objective. A goal is like the overall number one thing you're trying to do. So in this case, your goal is to increase your health span. The individual objectives are like the specific areas that are markers that designate waypoints on that journey or, or specific domains or areas where you should differentiate getting there. So each one, like delaying each one of these four horsemen in the case of this framework would be one of the objectives that we have. So in order to do that, there's certain strategy that's indicated based on scientific research. So this is the, uh, the science-informed part. So one of the strategies is going to be understanding ourselves as an individual versus just a member of a population. So this might include genetic testing and other blood work that's done, uh, observation about how you react to different lifestyles and treatments. And then strategies like exercise, diet, managing stress trying to sleep better. There's this kind of constellation of lifestyle and behaviors that lead to better overall health and generally affect the onset of all four of these um, horsemen based on what research indicates. And then finally, once we drill down again, there's the actual tactics. These are the actual behaviors that you implement in order to carry out the strategy in your life and reach the objectives that you've set. So an objective might be Delaying the onset of Alzheimer's or some other neurodegenerative to neurodegenerative disease. You know, you might want to do this because it's indicated in your family history. Maybe you've done genetic testing and you have specific SNPs in your genes that indicate an increased risk of having neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or something like that. So then you want to implement strategies that are informed by science. One of the 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 key correlations that are out there with neurodegenerative disease is a connection between not sleeping enough or not sleeping well and then the early onset of these diseases. So understanding that, then I need to then determine tactics for me, for my life. So maybe I struggle to fall asleep at night. So I might uh, develop a whole group of behavior changes in order to optimize my ability to fall asleep. Things like exposing myself to bright light during the day in order to, the light exposure affects our circadian rhythm and the, the release of, um, of melatonin in our body. And then dimming the lights at night, it, not exposing myself to screens, dimming the lights in my house, making sure the room that I'm sleeping in is absolutely dark, right? And all of that helps manage that circadian rhythm. I also might limit my exposure to stress light in the day meaning if I'm going to exercise, I'll exercise earlier in the day. I'll avoid working or opening emails later in the day or looking at the news or social media or any of these potentially stressful exposures that I have. And then finally, I might also not eat at the end of the day and then limit my caffeine to a very small amount. I understand that eating late in the day or consuming caffeine or alcohol can disturb my sleep no matter what time I consume it. All right. So I've gone from my goal of living longer to the objective of preventing neurodegenerative disease, to the strategy of of knowing myself and trying to sleep better, to the specific tactics of this this whole group of behaviors that I can change in my life one at a time in order to then carry out that strategy and so on. Uh, Let's just talk about a few other kind of strategy, tactic, distinguishing things that Dr. Atiyah proposes in the book, right? So our, our goal is don't die. One of the objectives that we have to have is that driving is dangerous. Driving is one of the most dangerous things that any of us will do. So the strategy is to limit the things that we can do that could potentially kill us while we're driving. Well, the, a lot of the vast majority of, of automo- deal, deal, automobile deaths are preventable. Things like drinking, speeding, excessive speed, and not wearing a seatbelt are some of the leading causes of, of people dying when they're in an automobile crash. So so not drinking and driving, not speeding, and then wearing a seatbelt are some of the the biggest things you can do, things you can check off the list right away, tactics. But then we ask beyond that, what's most likely to kill us while we're driving? It's actually uh, managing and navigating intersections. So going across an intersection and getting T-boned by another driver on your driver's side of the car is one of the most likely things to kill you while you're driving. So our strategy is going to be being safe when we're approaching intersections. So you employ something like this, even if you have a green light or if you have the right of way, you're still gonna look, right? And that means that you can look to see if another driver is coming and then either be able to stop or reorient your vehicle so that your driver's side door isn't hit by them. Then additionally, when you are stopped, since they're gonna be coming from your left if they hit you on that side, you would look left and then look right and then before you go, you would look left a second time. You'll double check that side. So by implementing these behaviors, you're then reducing the, the, the risk of this event happening. So hopefully these, uh, these different things will will help to illustrate what we're, what we're meaning here. Your goal, your objectives, your strategy, and your tactics. A final one I want to throw out there is uh, what he calls the centenarian decathlon. So the decathlon is a, an event in the Olympics where the person is doing 10 different, uh, 10 different sports and the best performance overall in all 10 of those sports wins the decathlon. Now, these athletes were, probably wouldn't even qualify for the Olympics in any one of these 10 events, if done individually, but they're specifically amazing athletes because they do all of them at an excellent level. And what he proposes is the centenarian decathlon is asking the question: In my last decade of life, so in my nineties or hundreds or something like that, what do I want to be able to do? In simple day-to-day tasks like being able to uh, being able to go up and down stairs, being able to take a walk with your spouse, being able to pick up your grandchildren off the ground, being able to uh, drive a car, being able to navigate an airport on your own, and place your your luggage in an overhead bin, right? All of these just average day-to-day behaviors, the typical person that reaches that age is no longer capable of these things. So he's saying in order to um, compete in the centenarian decathlon, you have to define those behaviors you wanna be able to do in your final decade and then understand the, the natural degeneration and weakening that happens in the human body in the preceding decades. So for example, in your, in your 40s and 50s, markers like strength and cardio health will naturally decrease five to 10% if you're not doing things to try to intervene. And then in your 50s and 60s and 70s, in these later decades, some of these markers decrease up to 15 to 20% each decade if you're not doing anything to intervene and change your lifestyle. You know, so right now you might be able to take a hike in your 50s, but you have to understand that by the time you're 80 years old, if if you're not aggressively trying to work on your cardio health and your strength, you will just likely not be able to do that anymore. So you actually have to work backwards. Ask, well, what's the cardio health of someone that can take a hike in their 80s look like? Understanding this is gonna degrade even if I try to make it better now. So that means right now, in order to be able to do this kind of average activity in my 80s, I need to be extraordinarily good at it. So, I can't just be on like my functional threshold where I'm getting by in my 40s and 50s. I have to be like a, an exceptional 50 year old physi- physiologically in order to be able to do these things well in my 80s and 90s. So, this, this strategy that's being employed here is understanding the, the natural change that happens as you get older. And then the tactics you employ are to, to sort of backwards engineer what performance needs to be in your early decades then what your training needs to look like in order to maintain function into those later decades. All right, now let's shift gears now and change the focus to our spiritual life, to our life of faith. You know, it's important to recognize that although health and longevity it, there's a kind of a moral weight to these things, but they're not an absolute value. Catechism paragraph 2289 says this. If if morality requires respect for the body, for the life of the body, it does not make it an absolute value. It rejects a neo-pagan notion that tends to promote the cult of the body, to sacrifice everything for its sake, to idolize physical perfection and success at sports. By its selective preference of the strong over the weak, such a concept can lead to the uh, perversion of human relationships. Right? We we do have a moral requirement to try to stay healthy. It's not okay just to let yourself go. It's not okay to, to intentionally choose behaviors that you're harming yourself. Like These, these behaviors uh, are going to form attachments in us, which make us less free. Many of them will be sinful and even sometimes can be gravely sinful. And then they also can indirectly be sinful in that they prevent us from performing our duties in life. Or this is one of my big motivations when I got healthier was I realized like I'm not going to be able to be there for my kids because I'm going to die young if I stay on this path. But it's not an absolute value. Right, Doing something like trying to compete in the centenarian decathlon might require some kind of a health routine which might demand like two hours a day of exercise, for example, and if you do this, living a kind of a relatively normal life, you have to ask the question, right? Does this line up with the duties and the different qualities of life that I'm being asked to complete as a disciple, right? Can I do that much exercise and still pray? Can I do that much exercise and still, and still really be present with my family or do justice to my employer? Right? We have to ask this question. We can't make longevity an absolute value. See, there's this way that the, the virtue of faith adjusts the end of our life, away from just living, survival, and flourishing in this world to eternal life, to life with God in heaven. But it's also true that the spiritual life is the preamble to our eternal life. What, what this means is that by growing closer to God, by the virtue of faith growing in us, by growing in virtue, by growing in prayer, all this is 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 really the beginning of heaven while we're on earth. But then the opposite is also true. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. So living in vice is a prefigurement of hell. So our spiritual life on earth is the preamble to our eternal life. right? So we're not just saying, well, this life is, is sort of not of value, and I'm just going to throw away my health, throw away my body, not take care of myself, Well, because God's going to give me a new body in heaven. No, God's not going to give us a new body. He's going to glorify this body. And with that change of perspective, right, it really puts that quote from the catechism, I think, into focus for us. That we do need to care for ourselves but not make it an absolute value. So we need to, to understand this on the hierarchy of good, goods that our, our faith presents us with. That our, our relationship with God comes first and flowing out from that is our primary vocation, our marriage or our our priesthood, our religious life, our our celibate consecration. And then from that are the duties that God gives us flowing out from that vocation, right? So your children as a parent or your parish as a priest or your religious community as a a member of a religious order. And then after that are then the way that we're meant to build the kingdom of God, right? Being out in the world and the work we do in providing for our family. So our job, our profession, our avocation, Right? This is the hierarchy of goods. And all of these are going to be blessed by being healthier. But we have, to some extent, limited control on our health. Maybe increasing control, but limited control. Now let's draw these principles out a little bit. You know, Dr. Atia presents us with the idea of Medicine 1.0, Medicine 2.0, and Medicine 3.0. And it begs the question, is there such a thing as holiness 1.0, holiness 2.0, and holiness 3.0? And I would propose not in the same way. The principles of holiness are still the same. Things like divine intimacy, humility, prayer, overcoming attachments, having healthy relationships, sacrificing for others, charity. like these, These core principles of holiness are the same. What changes, though, is our environment. Right, this the shift from medicine 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 implies certain massive shifts in our culture, in the world around us, which then imply different strategy and tactics within that the culture that we're in. One of the things that I think, one of the ways I think it's important to apply this is when we think of something like hagiography, hey, which is the study of the saints. Right? We could study the lives of ancient saints or the lives of modern saints. But we have to recognize the fact that their environment was drastically different than ours. So we might read uh, great biographies of saints like the Confessions of St. Augustine or the Life of St. Francis uh, as presented by St. Bonaventure or G.K. Chesterton or someone like this. So these, these beautiful biographies of these saints. But these saints were from a different age. So we can really glean from them things like objectives, like growing in divine intimacy or or deepening in prayer with the Lord, uh, overcoming vice and sin, and then even strategies. You know, different ways to do this, like entering into a a committed vocation in life, or a strategy uh, like meditating on the scriptures or something like that. But the tactics that we employ, we're probably not going to be able to just copy and paste what worked in the 12th century in somebody's life to the 21st century. And I think this is what, Trips up a lot of people when they study the lives of the saints is they fail to distinguish between strategy and tactics. So they say something like, Well, the Curie of ours, he only ate two or three potatoes a week. So I'm only going to eat two or three potatoes a week, too. <laughs> right? The, the strategy the Curie of ours is employing there is he's, he's mortifying his senses by fasting. But he's in a different context. They had a different understanding of the human body hundreds of years ago in France. In addition to that, right? He was uh, he was in a certain context where only certain foods were available to him. And then even beyond that, right? He had the specific vocation as a priest. All right. So if I take that principle and say, well, now I'm going to go on the potato diet. Some people actually do this to lose weight because it cranks your fat intake way down just eat potatoes. And what it does is it suppresses your appetite, so you eat less calories. But should I go on a potato diet? I would propose no, because one, it will be massively protein deficient, and as a result, the muscle of my body will waste away, guaranteeing that if one of the other horsemen don't kill me, I will likely be extremely frail in my old age, and I could potentially die in my 60s or 70s because I fall and break a bone. In addition to that, I'm Having to, to operate in a world where, uh, where it's presenting a, a different kind of food choice to me. Right? I have a different level of understanding about the way my body functions and how that then affects my, my senses, my ability to perform, my ability to be present, to overcome temptation. And then on the other hand, I also have a wife and a family and a certain job to do. And me taking on this extreme diet will likely affect the way I show up in all those domains. So this isn't to to sort of deconstruct the lives of the saints and judge the saints based on our our modern enlightened thinking. No, it's just recognizing that we're in a different environment. We're in this 3.0 environment today. So while we can learn from their objectives and their strategies, we have to do translation to understand the tactics that we do today. Let's now talk about another idea we might think of. So he presents these these kind of four horsemen, these diseases to avoid, but then four domains of behavior to change. Uh, But in these domains of diet, exercise, sleep, and stress management, or emotional health, um, I would propose that in our spiritual life, that, that we have a different set of needs. While physical health is important, it really fits within broader categories. And I would propose that these categories are the transcendentals or in the food series that I did recently, I called these the macronutrients of the soul or the macronutrients of the spiritual life. Drawing from the idea of nutrition of certain macronutrients, carbs, fat, protein. So these macronutrients of the spiritual life are the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one. The true, the good, the beautiful, and the one. These are, are the, the kind of characteristics or positive descriptions that we can have of divine nature. But then these are also things that God has left in his creation, goodness, truth, beauty, and oneness. And by experiencing the true, the good, the beautiful, and unity, I am experiencing God in my life, right? By, by experiencing the true, both uh, by by like reading and studying and experiencing true things, but also then to experience truth in my relationships, intimacy in my relationships, by me experiencing other people's, the truth of their lives and me revealing the truth of my life to others. And then I also experience truthfulness in my body, right? There's this idea of the language of the body coming out from John Paul II's Theology of the Body, that by my behaviors and my reactions, my behavior and reactions may either be true or false. I either speak truth with my body or lies with my body. The good, right? I need to do the good. I need to act virtuously. I also need to experience other people doing good to me. I need to be loved and I need to love others. And this experience of being loved changes my nervous system and my way of thinking and my emotional health. I need to let God love me and let others love me. And then I also need to know the good, I need to be directed toward the good. The beautiful, I need to experience beauty, I need to experience art. I need to create beauty. I need to create beauty. I need to be generative, uh, playing music, uh, painting a portrait, writing prose, sharing my ideas with others in ways that are compelling and attractive, having children, right? These are all ways that we proliferate beauty into the world. And I need to experience beauty. I need to be vulnerable to beauty. I need to cultivate an appreciation of the arts, of classical music, of theater, of good literature. Right, all these ways I expose myself to beauty. And then finally, oneness, relationship. I need oneness with God, divine intimacy, oneness with others, and in, in good, healthy relationships. I need to experience an integrity, a oneness in myself, of, of, uh, of a harmony between the faculties of my soul. Right, These transcendentals define the categories, the objectives of this life. In an upcoming series, I actually want to break this out the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one, and talk a little bit about each category more in depth. And then talk about strategy and tactics and how we can bring these uh, these transcendentals into our life in a, in a deeper way. The final thing I want to talk about is that we're not just uh, extending our lifespan and health span; we're beginning our eternal life now. We're beginning our eternal life now. And one of the realities we have to face is that the difficulty and virtue actually grows as we get older. And I'll I'll explain why. You know, when we're a young child, a young baby, we're receiving everything from our parents. And then at some point we reach the age of reason. But at that point, we're still being cared for. You know, who doesn't long for like summers in grade school and like the little foretaste of heaven that was. Like you had no responsibility. You just had fun with your friends, uh, time with the family. You know, like it was this little foretaste of heaven. Then what happens is you like get into high school and you get into now your studies are kind of more important and then your maybe sports and athletics and extracurriculars take on a new pitch. You get to college, you know, you might get your first job. You get married. You have children, and every one of these, what happens is there's there's an escalation of duty and a more and more that your um, your discretionary time gets pushed into the margins. So then you also have a reduction in your margin of error and how you spend your time. And then as you get older, it gets even worse because you get less physically capable. You get aches and pains. You're, you're, you're less able to move. You probably end up with some kind of disease or disability as you age. And then that that illness presents you with a certain level of temptation. When the catechism talks about the anointing of the sick, it, it points this out as one of the, the needs for the anointing in people's lives. It says it's a particular gift of the Holy Spirit. It says the first grace of this sacrament is one of strengthening peace and courage to overcome difficulties that go with the condition of serious illness or the frailty of old age. Right so the catechism is saying there's there's serious difficulties and temptation that require grace and courage to face as a result of being in these conditions. There's nothing worse than sitting in a hospital for a while. It's awful. You know, my experience of doing ministry in nursing homes when I was doing my studies was that you're not guaranteed to be wise and noble when you get older. A lot of people in those nursing homes were uh, struggling with habitual sins and acting out in various ways and dealing with all kinds of mental illness and difficulty and despair in their old age. right? And and this is because life got harder. And if they didn't grow in virtue, in a way to then meet that demand as they got older, what we find is we eventually stop flourishing and start acting out in various ways, start hurting the people around us. And and you've probably experienced that as your life has gotten more difficult, that you'll, you'll hit certain points where you realize, like, I don't have what it takes to handle this next stage. And this is because sometimes we're only motivated to grow and get better when we start to hurt. When we start to realize we we're hurting our spouse or not raising our children well or we're failing at our job or we're not being a good friend or we're struggling in our vocation to celibacy or whatever the temptation might be, right? That motivates us to change. But what if we flip the way we approach this and we start approaching it like the way Peter Atia proposes we approach the centenary decathlon? I understand that by the time I get into those, to those latter decades, I'm going to need to have saintly holiness in order to love people well in a nursing home or while I'm undergoing cancer treatment or any other difficulty that the end of my life might present me with. So that means today I need to not just have the level of virtue to confront uh, the situation that I'm in, but I actually have to try to seek a level of heroic virtue, of extraordinary virtue, to grow in the ages of the spiritual life in a way that, uh, that isn't trying to catch up with where I am but try to anticipate where the Lord wants to take me. All right, I hope these reflections have been helpful. I'll have links in the show notes to the book Outlive and to Dr. Atias' podcast if this has piqued your interest. Uh, it is pretty technical, so uh, I, uh, reader and uh, listener be warned, but it's good, good stuff about health and wellness, but without this faith element. Um, and then I hope you'll continue to join me. Uh, probably in the next few months I'll get around to this series going through these macronutrients of the soul, through this kind of approach. God bless everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for Physically Spiritual. I'm grateful for every single minute of the show you've watched. Uh, If you haven't yet, please like, follow, subscribe, and share the show. Help others find this great content. If you love what you hear here and want to help it to happen, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can do that by going to physicallyspiritual.com. There's different giving levels. And one of the great perks you'll get is to enter into a deep dive with me So every month to the patrons, I publish a video where I talk about what I'm reading, what I'm considering for upcoming shows, my thought process, and what guests are coming up. So God bless everyone. And thank you for joining us.